the story of two people who were so fed up with sarcoidosis, they decided to do something about it. And that was so incredibly frustrating because I knew there was something wrong with me and I knew that nobody really was digging into what was wrong with me. And it was very difficult to find people either in New York or outside of New York who really knew a lot about SARC and were able to give experience of treating patients. The voices of Andrea Wilson and her husband, Redding, the people who started the foundation for sarcoidosis research after Andrea's terrible bout with the disease. I'll ask her about how she fought through strokes and heart attacks while she and Redding created the foundation for sarcoidosis research, the leading voice in the fight against the disease. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hello and welcome to the Sark Fighter Podcast. This is where all of us who are fighting Sark, myself included, can gather and learn from one another, hear stories of other people who might be suffering from the disease and learn how they have or haven't adapted to their new life once Sark has hijacked it. And that's what I call it. I think it's a hijacking. It moves in slowly and the next thing you know, it's controlling your life. You don't go where you want to go. You go where sarcoidosis allows you to go. And that's one of the huge problems with this illness. It affects everybody differently. They call it the snowflake disease because no two snowflakes are the same and no two patients' experience with sarcoidosis are the same. Uh, so that's, that's why we're here. That's what we're here to talk about. And I'm happy to, uh, to be the host of the Sark Fighter podcast. My name is John Carlin. So this is episode 11. And I am thrilled now to watch the number of downloads increasing every week. People are finally discovering the Sark Fighter podcast, and uh, I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you can help spread the word by sharing links to the podcast on maybe your social media. And, and really, of course, I would love, love it if you would want to reach out to me uh, and become a part of this conversation. Many of you have found me uh, via email, and all my contact info is in the show notes. So please, don't hesitate to, to send me an email, tell me your story, tell me if maybe you'd like to be interviewed for the podcast and share your story with other folks. Uh, a lot of people do that on forums, um, but this is a way to do that and we actually get to hear your voice and, and get to know you a little better. Um, and uh, it's, it's just a little bit more involved, but podcasting is a new and great way to, to help spread the word uh, about anything. But uh, in this case, we're all about sarcoidosis. Okay, today I have an amazing treat for you. I, in fact, uh, I'm just really humbled and honored that we have uh, today Redding and Andrea Wilson. 20 years ago, after Andrea was meandering through various phases of misdiagnosis, uh, they eventually figured out that she had sarcoidosis. They had good insurance. They had means, and there still was no recourse. There was no place that they could go. There was no, seemingly no help. And so they started the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research at their kitchen table. And today, 
they have many of the world's leading medical minds working on the FSR advisory board. They are the key fundraising organization. They work with pharmaceutical companies to either help them advance their research or to get them on board to begin research. They're working with young researchers and, and trying to uh, get them to enter the medical community as original sarcoidosis researchers or specialists so they don't get in as one thing and then learn about sarcoidosis and 10 years later deviate to it. They want them to start their careers working on sarcoidosis. And those are the types of avenues that the medical community really needs to take if we are to be successful in finding treatments for this disease or this illness. Uh, but just imagine uh, how few resources we have today and then go back 20 years pre-FSR and how many fewer there were then. And I know I've heard from a lot of people who've had SARC for more than 20 years. And uh, at least there are more options now than there were. I still feel like it's a very limited menu that uh, doctors can can work from when they're trying to give you prescriptions. Usually it starts with prednisone. Somebody the other day called prednisone uh, the devil's Tic Tacs, referring to the little white pills that we take. Uh, it makes your life just miserable, makes you miserable, but it stops SARC. Uh, and then you, you usually wean yourself off of that and get onto another medication. And I'm getting off on sidebars, but it seems like you are trying to prevent yourself from having a SARC flare-up, which can make your life miserable, by taking drugs that uh, make your life, in many cases, just as miserable, if not more. Uh, I would say in, in 2019, I was about ready to just let SARC have at me and give up all of the the prednisone and everything that I was on. But at any rate, um, uh, Andrea and Redding are here today to talk about their frustrations and also their successes. And, and really, that's the key today is uh, there are uh, some significant successes. We are on the precipice of additional successes. I will mention that as I'm speaking right now, Redding is the interim executive director of the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research while they uh, the search committee uh, searches for the new leadership. And by the time you're listening to this, uh, that new leadership may be in place. Um, he didn't know, but uh, shortly after our interview on the same day, he was planning to have a meeting with the search committee and uh, they're, they're going to proceed. But the, the bottom line is, is that even after 20 years, when someone was needed to step up and run the organization in between uh, leaders, Redding was right there and is still actively involved, and, and Andrea is still actively involved. And so really, they are the leading voices as patient advocates for sarcoidosis uh, all around the world. And uh, I just want to uh, thank them for coming on today. Um, I will mention that one of the things they talk about, just a little bit of a teaser here, uh, is in the early days when they were trying to raise money, they even used a camel at one point. You know, the big animal with humps, a camel? Yeah. Uh, don't really know how they came to that, but uh, yeah, apparently it worked because here they are. So, Andrea and Redding Wilson, the founders of FSR, coming up on the Sark Fighter Podcast. The Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research is the nation's leading nonprofit organization dedicated to finding the cure for this disease and to improving care for sarcoidosis patients worldwide. 
Since its establishment in 2000, FSR has fostered over $5 million in sarcoidosis-specific research efforts and has provided disease education and support for thousands of individuals navigating life with sarcoidosis. Learn more about FSR and how they're supporting those impacted by this disease at www.stopsarcoidosis.org. At this time, it is my distinct pleasure to introduce here on the Sark Fighter podcast, Andrea and Redding Wilson, the founders of the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank We're you, John. We're to be with you. Thank yes. you so much for having us. It really is a treat to be here. Uh, this is so cool and such an honor. Uh, really, you guys have done so much. The, uh, the organization is now 20 years old, right? Yes. Yeah, we're in our 20th year right now. Yeah. And, uh, and I know that it was born from the frustration that many of our listeners are suffering right now because there are so few answers when it comes to sarcoidosis. But 20 years ago, when you all launched this uh, organization, there were even fewer answers. And it must have been extremely frustrating. Uh, because everybody I talked to talks about years and years of misdiagnosis and doctors not knowing what's going on with them and then not having any solutions. Um, and, and Andrea, I know uh, you are also a Sark fighter or Sark warrior, as we like to say. I say I, Sark fighter because of the name of the podcast, but uh, that's Sark right. warrior is what you hear more often. So why don't you, if you don't mind, share with the listeners uh, a little bit about your struggle, the symptoms, the onset, and, and where you found yourself 20 years ago. Sure, sure. I'd love to. Um, so basically, 20 years ago, I went from being a very healthy, athletic uh, person with, uh, you know, basically no, you know, nothing holding me back from from really reaching any goals I set physically. And so to, to basically being um, short of breath, uh, I was fatigued easily, I was dizzy, I was having trouble going out. I was recently married to this guy here, mm -hmm. and we started our new married life in New York, and I found myself uh, so tired that we couldn't go out together in crowds specifically, which was very weird, and mm -hmm. I was passing out, mm -hmm. and I went to a variety of doctors who said, ah, you know what? you're in a new city, you're a female, and you know, it must just be, I have no idea what the female part had to do with it. Um, you need more iron. Then, you know, I dug into it a little bit more, and they thought maybe I had a tumor in at the base of my skull, the top of my spine, and was treated for Meniere's disease for many years. And we just couldn't find any answers. So basically was just, I was sort of blown off. And that was so incredibly frustrating because I knew there was something wrong with me. And I knew that nobody really was digging into what was wrong with me. And anytime I went to a doctor and said, we just need to keep digging and, uh, you know, keep on going. And I kept pushing them. They just sort of pushed back and said, you know, they, they disregarded what I had to say. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so, so at this point, you've gone on for years, and the word sarcoidosis hasn't been mentioned. No, yeah. not at all. Right, yeah. 
And so I think uh, it was not until, it was not until a, a wonderful doctor named Francis Adams in New York City pegged it and said, you need to have a chest X-ray. And uh, finally, after having that, he took a bronchoscopy and confirmed sarcoidosis. And then the treatment began. But that was mm -hmm. just the beginning so, of the odyssey. Right. And then, but so then, which is then something that's so common to uh, most of the listeners, I thought, okay, great. Now I know what I'm dealing with. I can treat it and then we'll move on. But I was very wrong. Yeah. That's like the beginning of the bad news, isn't it? Right. 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 Yeah. yeah congratulations. You have an incurable disease. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. And then every time we kind of dug into, I think at that point it was, you know, the Merck manual or, you know, something like that. We, we couldn't find anything juicy or meaty to find it. You know, basically it said you, you have a disease of unknown etiology. And I called everybody, you know, friends of mine, you know, parents of my friends and trying to dig deeper into what this disease was. And nobody knew anything. No, nobody that I knew knew more than what they learned in med school, which is just a teeny blurb. Right. Which was that about all that was out there. Right. Yes. This Back is before the, the internet. That, that, that teeny blurb is it, right? So, so Redding, you're the caregiver through all of this. What are you thinking? Well, it was, it was a really difficult time, I think, in our lives because uh, we were both young. And, uh, you know, when you're young, I think you're you feel differently about the world and optimistic and you're busy in your career and building a life. And we were newlyweds. And so we were enjoying being newlyweds. And so this kind of threw a wrench in the plan. You know, you have a plan in your mind of this is what things are going to be like. And all of a sudden there's a, a kink in the, in the plan. So Tell what you thought so, after. So we had to pivot. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, Redding, Redding said he thought uh, initially he just, he's, I'm always the glasses half full person and he's the glasses half empty person. So he said after the bronchoscopy, after we figured out what it was, he sort of went dark and thought, okay, what am I gonna say at her funeral? Mm. Oh, wow. And so that was kind of a scary thing. I mean, I, I certainly wasn't thinking that way, but he said he just immediately went to the, so he said he just immediately went to, oh my God, she has, she has a lung disease. What the heck is that? Right. Well, there was a lot we didn't know, obviously. And I think in the you know, pre-internet days, it was very difficult to get information. And then certainly a lot of clinicians you know, in New York City, where obviously you know, huge city, lots of great healthcare, lots of great doctors. You would think everything is at your fingertips. And it was very difficult to find people either in New York or outside of New York who really knew a lot about SARC and were able to give experience of treating patients. And so we began looking and trying to figure it out. Andrea started her treatment regimen and obviously had the ups and downs of the prednisone and all the other things that they were trying and the side implication or the side effects of that. So, uh, you know, it was a trying time. Uh, bottom line, it was a trying time. We wanted to start a family at some point. And so, uh, you know, finally one great doctor, Andre had a, a lovely GP who said, Hey, you know, I think you got a little window here. So go for it. If you want to have children, because this might be your, your only window. Yeah. I think she, and, she uh, probably had an inkling. Oh, yeah, sorry. One at a time, maybe. 
<laughs> and so uh, that was, you know, so we started a family and we were blessed to have Maddie, our daughter, who's now actually today turning 25. So wow. it's her birthday and she was, she was uh, conceived in New York City and born in Charlotte, North Carolina. So uh, yeah, it's, it, it's been a long odyssey, but uh, we've, we've gotten better at dealing with it, I think. So uh, at some point, though, you looked around and said, this isn't good enough. There's not enough uh, medical information. There aren't enough resources available for people. We want to do something about it. And so how did you set about that task? We bandied the idea around for a little while. We were in Chicago at this point. We had My career had taken us through New York City and Charlotte and then back to Chicago where Andre and I both went to school and had met. And we just looked at each other and we said, hey, you know, if, if we have good health, if we have access to good health care and if we have, um, you know, the way and, and the ability to access it and still have had a difficult time trying to figure this out, you know, think about all the other folks out there that are just not in the same boat and we need to do something. So we said one night, I think we were looking at each other before we went to bed and we were like, let's do this and didn't know anything about a foundation. We actually got a book about starting a 501c3 and you know what do you do and what do you don't. And so we actually started following the prescription and it was very local, uh, grassroots, you know, friends and family, uh, you know, awareness events and fundraisers and things of that nature. Uh, we did one in Charlotte, uh, we called them KISS, uh, kick in to stop sarcoidosis. So we'd have a kind of the, the, uh, what we used to say was the um, not rubber chicken uh, fundraising event. We'd have the anti-rubber chicken fundraising event. and uh, Anti-rubber chicken black tie event that people uh -huh. get to go to. Yes. So we had a lot of fun uh, doing that and raising awareness. And it started to build some momentum. And we realized that, you know, we were the only organization that was really kind of pulling a lot of this together and so we could do more and, and the, there was a need for more. Right. And I think, you know, we started off thinking, you know, we're, we're not going to have this as just, you know, a, a small kind of homey, right. Well, not, and, and those local support groups are very, very important. Yes. Um, but what we wanted to do was we really felt like we needed to make a big splash and we thought, we spent a lot of time thinking about it and really kind of came up with a business plan. We, we spoke to a lot of people um, in the medical community, in, in the medical, in the sarcoid community, <clears throat> excuse me. And before we did it, we, we traveled around, <clears throat> excuse me, when, when I was feeling well. And, and just to backtrack a little, when I was, I was on, uh, I think almost an 18 month round of, of chemo. And so, so I was, kind of down for the count on some of this sort of experimental chemo mm -hmm. treatments. And so I thought, you know, if I'm having a really tough time with this and am insured and can travel around and so forth, what about people who can't? And, you know, and I'm having a horrible time with it. And I just thought, you know, this really, you know, we need to make this loud. You know, we need to help others who can't help themselves. So Redding and I traveled around and spoke to, all of the really strong physicians in, in the Sark arena and said, hey, look, if we put this foundation together, we really need you as a backbone. And they were so amazing and said, absolutely, 
we are there. Just tell us what to do. And to this day, they're still there. And we are just so grateful to them. And uh, so they became our scientific advisory board mm -hmm. and are still with us, many of them. Um, and uh, so, so that has been tremendous. Uh, our board has changed a little bit. But, you know, initially it really was so grassroots, like born out of our bedroom in our apartment. And then, you know, we're running and are staying up most of the night, hashing stuff out at our kitchen table. Mm -hmm. And some of our first fundraisers were thinking, all right, we don't want to have those horrible fundraisers where everyone's bored and they have to get dressed up and they really don't enjoy don't, don't, and don't go. learn anything. Right, right exactly. Right. And, and if people are going to come out, we're going to make sure that they know how to pronounce sarcoid, they know what it is, and there's going to be some takeaway. Exactly. So, you know, we, we at, at one of our fundraisers, we had camp, live camels, a 40-pound snake, and a monkey. And really? To, just to entice people. Let's see if I can find those photos somewhere. Did, did that work? It worked. <laughs> people were like, oh, my God, I am coming. And we had a theme for every single party. And so people were like, oh God, I am definitely gonna come. So where did, where did you get the camel? <laughs> Somewhere in Chicago. Uh-huh, okay. <laughs> All right, cool. So, But I think what was neat about it, John, was uh, as we did these kind of grassroots events, friends and family, we'd hear about a friend mm -hmm. who had a friend who had sarcoidosis, or we'd hear about a friend who's brother or sister or yep. co-worker had sarcoidosis and people we've known for years these stories just started to bubble up very quickly and it became apparent that there were a lot of people in this boat and I think that gave us a lot of inspiration to really as Andrea said try to be something different we wanted patients to be aware to be more educated about the disease how they could get help how they could seek it and understand the disease that they had uh, but also to try to begin trying to drive some research because that's where ultimately we hope, you know, you can develop a new drug or something that could be curative uh, and right. better than what exists today, which is, you know, frontline prednisone and other uh, immunosuppressants. So I think a big part of what we were hoping to do is to become strong enough and, and financially viable enough that we could begin to support research and do more than just, you know, kind of have a, a local uh, organization and uh, although those are very important sure and we needed to work with those that were you know obviously existing at that time and help them and and help each other so um, it just we just kind of saw this momentum and we saw that there was nothing there in the space already and so we needed to fill that void and that was really a, I think a key key element and to streamline basically all of, you know then so going back to when I was first diagnosed, there seemed to be just a lack of information about the disease. Then all of a sudden there became, you know, more information about SARC, but then some disinformation or some incorrect information. So then we felt as though we really needed to kind of wrangle that information and streamline it, make sure that people had the correct information, much like, you know, what's going on with COVID right now. Right. There's a lot of different information about masks, about how you can, how you get it, you know, potential treatments. Um, so what we want to do is sort of have an umbrella organization under which all of these other, you know, interests and groups can be, but that we can sort of be the clearinghouse for it 
and get all of, you know, kind of stream, I guess, streamline the information. Right. So you, so you, you're doing the fundraisers, you've got the camels, which I think is hilarious. Um, and people are coming and they're, they're donating and you're starting to uh, build a, a little uh, pot of money. Uh, And and now we've got a scientific advisory board and they're doctors and they're trying to guide it. But now you've got to do something with that money and that expertise. So how did the organization then evolve to where it is today with what, 12 or 13 employees and uh, an annual budget that's a couple of million dollars bigger than that? Yeah, probably closer to th- between three and four, depending three on four. You know, how you look at different. Um, yeah, so it's we, we hired our first executive director in Chicago, uh, and she was with us for five years helping us grow. And then we obviously had become a bigger organization. We had a full-time development director at that point. Uh, we obviously had the scientific advisory board and others. And then we hired our second executive director when uh, our first left us and we really began to, to build momentum there and add the team, uh, which is now, as you pointed out, closer to about eight or nine people, you know, both full-time equivalents and part-timers uh, working with us and uh, our ability to, you know, get out there and, and speak on both a, a nationwide basis and a global basis really became, it was happening. And so, uh, as you pointed out, the budget has grown, the, the, capabilities of the organization have grown. And I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but um, you know, we hired very bright, smart people that have been on the whole with us for more than you know, five years. Uh, and they've grown and they're passionate about sarcoidosis. So I've got to take my hat off because the team is super dedicated and super, super and smart. The and the board has been uh, fantastic and continues to grow and um, get stronger. And uh, it's just, it's all kind of bubbled up. So I think also that, you know, I think we keep honing a start, you know, keep looking at a strategic plan. We look, we look and see what's going on in the sarcoid world. And then we go back again to our patients and look at what our patients need, uh, which is, which are better treatments. And we look and see what, what the need is in the field, which can be, a disease model, which can be different programs to better help the patients, but in the end, really uh, better, you know, like we've said, better, better, um, better treatments for the patients, better 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 treatments, better care. Right. So right now the organization as that you've, you've, very successfully created this umbrella organization Mm -hmm. uh, with patient outreach, and with the, the various summits that happen every year where you go yeah. from city to city to city and you host patients and you host speakers. And I say you, I, I almost feel like I could say we because I'm a, right. a, yes. an advocate, right? right? Yes, um, yes. Thank but, uh, you. Sure, oh, my God. Yeah, thank you. Um, because like all the other people who are listening, I felt like, okay, I've got a doctor, I know what I have, da, 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 da. And, you know, for three or four months, everything was fine. And then all of a sudden, um, I'm realizing, hmm, this isn't going to go away, (laughs) you know? And and then you start, so then you start Googling around a little bit more, you see some scary things, because some of the folks on the forums uh, who are in a bad way, uh, you, you think, oh, if that becomes me, you know, my life is over as I know it. Um, yeah. 
which actually to some degree is true. Um, but anyway, so, so getting back to the organization, we've got the umbrella, so you're fundraising, and now we've got the pharmaceutical companies kind of looking at cures for sarcoidosis. Uh-huh. But we're, we're, I always, when I try to describe it, I think of like a, a six, eight guy in the NBA who wants to be a guard. He's not big enough to be a forward, <laughs> you know, and he's too tall to be a guard. He's a tweener. Uh, and, and we impact a lot of people, but we're not cancer. Right. So, right. so the pharmaceutical companies, I think, kind of look past the opportunity with sarcoidosis because there aren't enough, there's not enough potential upside, right? Isn't, isn't that a problem? It is a problem. I think it's the economics of business uh, for a pharmaceutical company. But I think a couple things have changed, which have been, which is, which is, which have helped since we started the organization. So, number one, I think the patients have to present themselves and make their case, which we're trying to help every day to coordinate the voices of our patients, so people on the other side of the table understand what this disease is and the implications of the disease. I think that's super important. And obviously FSR's mission is driven by the needs of the patients. The pharmaceutical companies obviously are are vast and they have many different compounds uh, that they're constantly working with or sometimes have on the shelf that maybe they're not doing anything with. And I think what we're trying to do as an organization is to entice those pharmaceutical companies to come into the sarcoid space Uh, to test a compound, whether it's a new compound or repurposing an existing compound, and to see if there is strong application. I think there are also, as you understand about SARC, there are other what I would call ancillary diseases. So, you know, IPF or others that affect, you know, your lungs could be similar in in, in scientific ways and in, in, in the course of the disease to sarcoidosis. So maybe a treatment for that could be a treatment for sarcoidosis as well. So that's an avenue. But I think what happened when Hatch-Waxman was passed, which was a, a bill in Congress that allowed uh, orphan diseases, so the, the patient population in the U.S. of less than 250,000, uh, at least defined, Um, pharmaceutical companies can have an incentive to work on those diseases because they get a longer patent uh, if indeed they develop something that they ultimately you know take to the public so as opposed to a four-year period they get a seven-year period in which to have their exclusivity on that drug before it goes generic and so that was an economic incentive that allowed those pharmas to begin looking closer at treating smaller patient populations So that's kind of where we are today. Uh, But again, I think FSR's goal is to try to help bring more of these companies into the space, help them do a trial. So we've got our clinical studies network, uh, which is a network of hospitals around the country and international that brings patients to these trials and helps the pharmas recruit and get these studies going quickly and executing them so we can move forward faster. I think that's the whole goal is forward faster, get these, you know, get the, get things happening in the disease space that are going to benefit patients, but try to make it happen quickly. Because as you know, drug development is a, it's a long process, you know, uh, phase one, phase two, phase three, you know, these trials take a long time and the FDA is getting a much FDA is sharp and they're, they're helping this, this process come along faster. 
Um, but it's, it still takes a lot of money and a lot of time. And we realize that. So we're just trying to be a helpful and accretive to getting it done quicker. Yeah. And I guess sarcoidosis compounds that because in what is it? 50% of the cases, it goes away on its own. Right. right. So you don't, you don't know if Good it's impact. medication that was effective or if it was, um, or if it was just sarcoidosis being sarcoidosis. Genetics. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Huh. So right now uh, you mentioned a disease model for people yeah. who don't know what that is and why it's important. Could you explain that? <laughs> I'm going to try my best. Neither Andre or I are scientists, but uh, so quite often uh, in any disease, there is a model for developing a, a new compound and a way to determine if that compound is effective and to have endpoints that are really kind of understood across the whole, you know, the, a broad spectrum of researchers. And so it, it's basically a way to take a new compound, run it through the model that you have that's basically been agreed to by all parties, if you will, and determine if that, if that compound is really effective or not effective. And if a pharma has a way to look at a model and say, hey, we can test against this model and know definitively if we're on the right track or the wrong track, they're more inclined to come in and, and, and do the work. If there is no model, if there is no disease model, then it becomes a little more ambiguous. There's a lot more ambiguity about whether or not their compound is effective or not effective. And hence, there's less desire on their part to come in and try that compound and spend the money, spend the time, run the trial, if there's no kind of construct in which they can determine if it's going to be successful or not, or to measure if it's going to be successful. That was perfect. So I think generally that's <laughs> yeah, kind of what yeah. an animal model is, a disease well, no, model. It's, so it could be either animal or in a lab. Right. Okay. And so, so, so it's not necessarily a disease model. So it's not necessarily an animal model. So for instance, cancer has an animal model, which is a mouse, I think. Mm -hmm. No, nothing. Um, Okay. So, yeah. and, and are we close to, a, isn't there a mouse model that's close for us? Sarcoid cannot be replicated in a mouse, I don't believe. Okay. Right? <laughs> I, feel, I feel like I'm, I'm remembering bits and pieces okay. of the conversation. Right. I'm not sure. Don't not delete that. Here. Okay, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, so, but isn't, the NIH doesn't come, we don't get major government funding until we have a disease model. Is that true? It would certainly benefit us, and it would benefit researchers who obviously are trying to promote their research. Because, again, if you have a disease model which you can kind of use as your your baseline, then it creates the ability for a researcher to test, uh, you know, a new treatment against that model. And and yes, so it creates more confidence for any whether it's a pharmaceutical company or the NIH or NHLBI who's giving you grant money, RO1 grant money, big money, uh, it gives you the ability or the researcher the ability to, um, you know, have a, have, a, have a baseline to measure against. So FSR did initiate, uh, we had five groups of researchers, both uh, domestic and international, uh, that we funded over a two-year period. The total funding for all five was approximately 750000 And each of them was researching a disease model. They all had different ideas. We uh, selected five of what we thought were the best prospects out of a much larger list uh, of applicants, if you will. 
And after a two-year period last fall at ERS, the European Respiratory Society, uh, they presented the findings that they had come to, that they had concluded over that two-year period. And it was very encouraging. I think there's some really good work that's been done. And we want to find a way to continue to fund these folks because it's not a finished product yet, but we think that we're moving the ball forward. And with a little more time and energy and money, obviously, uh, we can ultimately get to the place where there is a, a, a very viable disease model. And that would that would open a lot of doors. It may not be a panacea or the, you know, the golden key, if you will, but it's certainly going to be helpful to the entire SARC space um, and benefit, I think, research on a go-forward basis. So we're excited about it. There's a little, uh, there's some updates on it in our annual report and on our website. We've published some pieces about the specific research projects that were done and who did them. Uh, and it's been, um, you know, that's been well received. So that's one avenue. There's, um, there's a lot of, lot of different avenues too that we're working on. Well, so, the, but the difference between now and finding a cure at the end of the day is money. Yes. You, because you've got to support the research and we got to keep the, the staff in place and we've got to, we've got to make sure that the world knows about sarcoidosis yes. and we've yes. got to support the patients who have it in the meantime. Yes. Um, so what can people do if they're listening uh, or or let's say a pharma uh, CEO decides he wants to listen to the Sark Fighter podcast right. <laughs> and, and he's intrigued uh, or she. Um, so, you know, what is, what is the pitch to these folks for money or, or at the grassroots level, how can people help? Yeah. So I think it's, it, obviously any support is welcome always uh, as an organization. We need people, as we said, previously patients who are talking about the disease coming together and, and using their collective voice. So I think that's very important. And, and you as an advocate, um, the role that you play in, within your community, within the whole country is very valuable because that patient voice does matter to the pharmas and others, you know, whether it's a government agency or a for-profit company, it does matter because they need to know what the patients are experiencing with the disease. They need to know how to um, obviously run a trial or they run a trial that needs patients. So if a patient is out there and they can participate in a trial, that's very helpful. If the patient is out there and they can serve as an advocate and educate others you know, whether it's a, a local doctor uh, who may not know a lot about SARC or other patients who don't know a lot about SARC but have the disease, that's super valuable. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's uh, a benefit, obviously, is, is helping us raise funds. So on a local basis, if you're doing a, a walkathon or a bikeathon, I know you're a cyclist, um, folks have very creative minds and we're here to help them run those local fundraisers if they want to. So for example, this year, uh, we typically have walkathons in April. We had to postpone that because of COVID. We're doing a bunch of virtual walks later this year. And so those virtual walks will allow people on a local basis just to go out with a group of friends. They can social distance and still do a walk that raises money in their local community that benefits FSR. So that's the key, key component too. And, uh, and then we're out there, you know, just, again, trying to meet with people and, 
talk to donors and uh, whether it's a, a major donor or a, a smaller donor, but every little bit counts obviously along the way. And um, uh, those resources help us attract other resources. And it's not necessarily that FSR has to raise all the money. If we raise enough money to create that awareness and to, to work with our other partners in the disease space, the collective resources are really what matters. Um, not so much just what FSR raises. And the collective uh, voice and making right. it big and making sarcoid big. Right. Well, and it, so how, to, to what extent do you feel like um, FSR has been successful from its humble beginnings to where it is today? Well, it's, it's uh, Andre and I look at each other and I think, you know, we're very proud of the legacy of FSR. And we realize that it's not us. No. And, you know, it, it's not yeah. the Redding and Andrea show at all. No, it's so Everybody much who's been a part of it. It's and you. It's, it's every, every patient, every, you know, all the, all the, the dedicated team of people that are working there every day. Obviously, the clinicians, the doctors, our pharma partners. It's, it's the grown. ambassadors. It's, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's grown everybody. so much. And it's. And we want it to continue to grow. We're, our, our goal is not to hold on to this as our little baby and, you know, never let go of it. It's, um, we want to see it blossom. And I think that's, I think the next 20 years, our goal is to hopefully find a, a treatment that is going to be a much better form of treatment for patients, uh, more effective, less side effects, fewer side effects, and, you know, just continue to build this momentum faster around, um, helping patients with their treatments. And uh, I think that would be a legacy that we'd love to leave behind. And to be out of business. <laughs> that, that's my, I, I would say that in staff meetings and people are like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like no you're kidding. crazy. But I think, no, you know what? Our goal is to be out of business. Right, right. So, um, so Andrea, how are, how are you feeling now, uh, 20 years into sarcoidosis or 20 plus years? Physically or emotionally? Either one, because I think they're, they're not too far apart. You know, I think emotionally, I feel so much, I, I feel relieved. I, I think uh, initially going into it, I was terrified. I felt this big mountain of fear on my back thinking, oh my God, what is this? Am, am I going to make it? And I think now I feel as though I have just an army of physicians that I can call basically at any time. And I do feel as though I have, I, I feel as though I have options. And I, I went the um, sort of alternative route. I don't know if you know that whole situation, but, and I feel as though I really, yeah. I, I mean, I incorporated that into my plan and that has helped me immensely. That has really changed my life. Okay, and I don't, I don't know about the alternative route. So you're, you're going to have to share a little bit about that. Is that okay? okay? He's going to. Do we have time? Banging at the door. Oh, oh okay. of course. So the reason we're in California, but you could just let her in. Ready? Just let her in. Um, so the reason we're in California. We were, we were in New York and then Chicago. We were in Chicago for about 23 years. Mm -hmm. 
And um, so basically I was, I was having, uh, I've had a heart attack and two strokes. And basically after my second stroke, I was in just terrible pain. Woke up with uh, just horrible head pain, trigeminal neuralgia. Um, and decided to, I have a dear friend who lives in California and she basically convinced me to come out to California and work with her physicians here, uh, alternative doctors. So I came out and, um, eventually ended up moving out here for a year with my daughter, our daughter and doing, uh, electric stim acupuncture and completely changing my diet, gluten, dairy, sugar, corn, nut, legume free, and sort of what I called the prison diet. <laughs> and it just, it changed my life. And so we ended up moving out here a few years later. And I've basically stayed on that regime without the uh, electric stim acupuncture, but I just doing that as needed. And, you know, staying really pretty green and gluten, dairy, and mostly sugar free. And, but in addition to your and, other medications. Right. And in addition to most of my medications, but I'm off of pretty much all of my pain medications. So, oh. yeah. Yep. So, but I was on seven major narcotics. Oh. That were prescribed to me by, um, by a pain clinic in Chicago. And, you know, I just, I did not have any quality of life for a couple of years there. Um, so that, that has been, you know, living sort of the green life has been amazing. Huh? Cause every time I ask a doctor, can I change my diet and help this? They all say, no, nah, that doesn't make any difference. There's no research to support that. Yep. That's exactly what I was told. And one of, one of the top doctors that I have immense respect for said, well, you go do that crazy stuff in California and good luck to you. So I did, and I came back, and he was kind of, he was wowed. He was like, jeez, really? Huh. And so it worked. And now, it, that was the, the symptoms of the, the stroke, but what about the breathing, the, the, the pulmonary oh, sarcoidosis? How, how, how is that resolved? I have, honestly, I have no idea. I to don't be think honest, it's I mean, necessarily. But. Yeah, I, I think I am still breathy. I mean, when I exercise and when I walk with friends, they always give me the old, are you okay? I said, <laughs> oh, that, I'm fine. I'm just kind of breathy. Huh. And it, it does, you know, when I walk with people, like they do sort of get nervous, but it's fine. I mean, I power through it. Yeah. I, think, and, I, think what, I think what we've learned is that, you know, there are certain diets that, you know, are less inflammatory or certain yes. foods that are less inflammatory to your body. And, you know, again, we're not medical experts, but, you know, just logically, if you can reduce inflammation in your body, I think that's maybe something that benefits you. And right. hopefully it's, it's benefited Andrea. She incorporated acupuncture with uh, some of the, um, you know, Western medicine that she's being treated with. And, you know, maybe just finding that balance, a little bit of everything, you know, and everybody's different. So we're not trying to promote a a certain way of treatment here, but everybody's different. And I think when you have SARC, the one thing that we learned is to be open-minded about, you know, trying things that might be different, you know, trying things that, 
that might help in addition to obviously working with your clinicians to, you know, to do what they know best um, and use some of the drugs that are helpful um, right. for patients. But it's, it's a trial and error process. There's no formula. Right. And I know that my, my uh, acupuncturist out here, who is, he is very, well, not very, he's, he's against a lot of Western medicine and said that, you know, maybe I should go off of, my medications. And I said, no, I can't do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've got to, you've got to keep things. Sure. I've been, I've been to two different acupuncturists here in mm -hmm. uh, Roanoke, Virginia. Um, and I, I, you know, my, my issue is, is that, is that I have, uh, I have a big lesion on my spine right here at the base of my neck. And so I have basically lost the sensitivity to touch from here to my feet um, to, a, to some extent. It's not 100%. But uh, so I was trying to reconnect some of those nerve endings with the acupuncture. And I went through it for quite a while, but I, I, I didn't find any difference. But the, I, they were telling me the same kinds of things. We'll talk about your diet and do this and do that. And honestly, I really don't know how. And I bet you there's a lot of people who don't know how, and maybe under a an, under a different uh, in a different hour we can talk about Andrea all the the things that you've discovered while you were in California. Because I'd love to. Yep. Uh, I actually mentioned in my last podcast that I wanted to reach out and I wanted to hear about how diet might affect SARC. Definitely, right? I'd now, love to help you with that. Not, not knowing that 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 was uh, one of the avenues that we would go down today, but <laughs> absolutely. Uh, Yep. That's a great sidebar. We'll chat. Yep. It really is because it deserves its own its own podcast. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I, the, the whole anti-inflammatory food thing, and uh, you know, I don't I don't think I could go off my medicine. I'm currently taking uh, Imuran and uh, Humira, mm -hmm. um, and I spent a whole year on chemo, which was Cytoxin and oh, Prednisone. Yeah. Uh, yep. Which I bet you that's what you had when you were. Is that the, the chemo drug that you took? I was on methotrexate, yeah. uh, Imuran, and yeah. or something else. And I was, I was also on um, Humira. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's kind of working for me as far, you know, because I haven't had, a, when I don't have a flare, I feel like that's a win. Um, and. Yep, I, absolutely. So, uh, so to that extent, it's working. But when I walk around every day, I still have all this numbness, and but I think that's just permanent damage to my spinal cord. So that's probably not going to change. Um, but so the win is is not getting worse, right? Right, yes. right. That's true. That's true. All right. Well, we'll talk offline about some other okay some other potential ideas. All right, that sounds good. So, so uh, the last the last thing I want to touch on, um, Redding, is is that you are. Uh, as of this recording, the uh, interim executive director of the foundation, yes. uh, and you've sort of stepped in to, to fill that role until such time as a new uh, CEO can be found, and I understand that you're very close. Yes. Yeah, we've, uh, so we formed a CEO search committee with the board, uh, and the chair of that is a woman by the name of Mary Cobb, who lives in New Jersey and has a sister with sarcoidosis. Mary's been a, a very trusted, valued board member but we have a great search committee. We did the search on our own, as a matter of fact. We were uncertain whether during COVID, 
people were going to be looking for new jobs or, you know, how the world would evolve. And so we actually did the search on our own and uh, sourced, I think, about 45 very highly qualified candidates, winnowed the pool down. And as you said, I think we have two or three candidates right now that we're very focused on and we feel could be uh, terrific uh, leaders for the organization on a go forward basis, hopefully for the next two decades or so. And uh, hopefully we'll have that decision in the books, you know, sometime in the next couple of weeks. So it's exciting. It it's is so exciting. It's been weird during COVID. It's like doing these Zoom interviews and uh, trying to get to know someone where you're not necessarily in the same room and can read body language and things of that nature, but it is the real world. And so we, we've embraced it. <laughs> yeah. But it's actually good to bring it sort of, I, I don't know. It's been exciting. Okay. It really is a labor of love. I have to say this whole, you know, it, with growing pains, but it is, we, we love it. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. It's it so, overwhelming, but we love it. What do you think will be the next domino that will tumble as we look forward two, three, four, five years uh, in, in the fight against Sark? What, what would be considered the next victory? I think there will be some compounds that get to market that are new. Uh, and I think there will be some, uh, some advancement there. I really do. We're working with some, some companies now that are, um, you know, focused on developing compounds that could be, you know, new and different. And I think that there's a good chance that, you know, one or two could, could get there. Uh, still a long process, still, you know, lots of unknowns and ifs, but uh, I think that could really be neat. Uh, I think some of our researchers are going to garner some major attention with, you know, their ideas from and, and funding from the NIH with our, you know, with, with us filling the gaps, with FSR filling the gap to give kind of momentum to some of these researchers. Um, I think that will be beneficial. And I think the third thing is you're going to see new faces in sarcoidosis in terms of uh, professionals. Part of our, our goal is to bring new thinkers and, and young uh, investigators into the disease space and help them build careers in sarcoidosis. Whereas before they might've said, oh, I wanna to go to cancer or I wanna go research um, you know, some other disease. I think we have, you know, we're, we're doing a better job recruiting, if you will, these people, uh, these brilliant people to the sarcoidosis space. So I think those three things are really gonna I think those will be three, three hallmarks. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're just working, you know, on a lot of different fronts, but to answer your question, I think that's where we'll see some, some changes. For instance, yeah. I, yeah, I don't, okay. I mean, there are a lot of folks that were that are out there. Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, you know, the, the podcast is always open whenever you have something you want to announce. <laughs> <laughs> You're very kind to share your time with us. I know. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, when I started this, um, the thought that I might be interviewing you guys or uh, Dr. Bob Boffman or... Uh, oh, we love him. The, I, this this has kind of grown from my little grassroots effort to uh, you know now we've got some reach and uh, the more okay. more we can put it out there the more we the more that the Sark Fighter podcast can be a part of the solution then you know, that's the only reason I'm doing it so uh, exactly yeah for sure well guys thank you so much thank you so much for your time today uh, Andre, you. good luck with the treatments we'll talk further about the uh, 
the, the uh, California approach? <laughs> Absolutely. John, call, I mean, anytime, if you have time after I, this, I'm happy to talk. I do. I do, actually. So, okay. And, and Reading, hopefully you'll be off the hot seat soon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like the hot seat. It's kind of fun. I'm going to fire him. <laughs> okay. Good. Good. I'm going to fire him. I'm going to fire you. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. Be well. Thanks again to Andrea and Redding Wilson for coming on the Sark Fighter podcast. Andrea mentioned some of those dietary restrictions that she's put herself on, as well as some of the sort of Eastern medicine techniques she is using to keep Sark in check. And she has agreed to share some of those with me that, that I might try them. In fact, we had a quick follow-up phone call after the interview today, and I'm already uh, very interested in some of the things that she's working on, but we'll have more about that in a future episode. Uh, and of course, if I try any of those and if they work for me, uh, I'll be happy to uh, to share them with you and maybe you can go along with me on that journey and maybe you can try this as well. Uh, and Andre has said that she'll come back on because I want to talk to her on a separate podcast about just some of the things that she has done to keep sarcoidosis in check. And believe me, she has been down the road. If you listen to the interview, she's had the chemo, she's taken all the drugs, she's familiar with all the Western medicine, and she is still using uh, a lot of Western medicine, uh, or some, uh, in addition to to what I'm calling the uh, the California treatment, and <laughs> she laughs and calls it the same thing uh, that she's uh, that she's using right now. But the bottom line is, it appears to be working for her. So we do have that to look forward to. Remember, the uh, Sark Fighter podcast is uploaded early in the morning every other Monday. So set your appointment book for each new episode. And please share this on social media, wherever you can. Let's get the word out and continue to, uh, to fight this disease together. That's all for this time. Until next time, keep fighting.